Good. Turn with me to Matthew chapter two, the Gospel of Saint Matthew, and we're gonna we're gonna be in chapter two, starting with verse thirteen. I'm gonna read, read ten verses here, and uh, if you'll remember, the season that we are currently in, as far as the church calendar goes, is Epiphany, um, and you know you know how when you start here, maybe it's a new word for you, Epiphany. Um, which would kind of be uh, ironic, would it not? Seeing the word means revealing or appearing. So maybe this word appeared to you. Anyway, I saw a place of business called Epiphany the other day, and I thought, huh, look at there, right there on 72, Epiphany. Of course, they weren't celebrating the same Epiphany that we're celebrating. I think what they meant was when you come out of there, you'll have a new haircut, uh, and and it'll be a new appearing of your hair. But but, uh, what we're talking about is a little more than hair, which is Jesus Christ. His appearing, His revealing. And that's what Epiphany moves us from darkness to light. The world is dark because it does not have Jesus Christ. And after Jesus is revealed, in particular to the Magi, why are the Magi important? Because they're Gentiles. They're from that dark place of India where there was no promise made to them. There was no law given to them. They don't have God like the Israelites do. They're kind of out there on their own. And yet, there are some who are faithfully seeking after God and find Him, which gives us hope for those places in the world that are still darkened without the Gospel. We don't know what happens to people. Uh, We're not told in the Bible specifically who never get the name of Jesus. But we are told that the Magi did not have His name and yet they found Him, which gives us hope. It gives us as Gentiles hope. And now He has appeared in the flesh. Flesh and blood again. That's where this blood thing comes in. And has made God known to us in the flesh. That's what the incarnation is all about. That's what Advent prepared us for and Christmas fulfilled us with. And now He appears to the Magi. Then He also is baptized, which unites us to Him as well. Now, let's read here in Matthew chapter 3. And what I'm going to do... Or sorry, 2... 20 and 13 through 23, uh, what I'm going to do over the next few Sundays is just kind of pick and choose several uh, episodes, if you will, from Jesus' life. Notice this one, which is the flight to Egypt and the return. Now, when they had departed, speaking of the Magi, the kings, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let us pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your word that we can know you, the living God. Would you, O Holy Spirit, descend upon us now in this place and reveal yourself to us so that you might save us from our sin and call us to your purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We move from the Magi immediately into this story of them fleeing off to Egypt. Now, we believe that when the three kings and their compadres, uh, the, the, these, these, at least these three kings, it could have been more, uh, came and visited Jesus, we believe that he was about two years old. He was a toddler at this point. Um, now, the reason we, we say that is because when Herod goes and kills the kids... He kills him from two and under, which means he probably, you know, obviously he's, he's not just an infant. Um, he's actually toddler aged here at some point. So they come and, and present their gifts to a toddler. Uh, we talked about that and how, how amazing just that scene is in itself that these kings from the east, more than likely India, uh, from the, you know, divining the stars of all things, find Jesus through creation. That's an amazing story in itself. But this one even gets more interesting now that Joseph, who is uh, Jesus' dad, uh, earthly dad, his father, of course, is in heaven. He, as I just told the children, never has not existed. Uh, the Son of God has always existed. Jesus uh, does not, is not some kind of creation of God. He has always existed and now takes on flesh for us. The Father doesn't, the Spirit doesn't, but the Son does. And, and now we get this scene where Joseph actually has a dream and says to go and flee to Egypt. This flight to Egypt. And sometimes I wonder in the Scripture, I think, why would this be in Scripture? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that, that I would want answered about God, you know, about questions in life that, that really don't get answered in the Bible. You ever notice that? I mean, some people make the mistake of saying, the Bible has all the answers to life. Well, it doesn't tell me how to change the oil of my car. To tell me what kind of house to buy. Um, no, it's concerned with one thing, and that is the revelation of God. He is revealing Himself in the Bible to us so that we can have a relationship with Him. And we're on really a need-to-know basis. Most of you in this area know what that means uh, very well. We, we're not given everything, but we're given what we need to know in order to have a relationship with God. And here's this story of them going to Egypt. And in this horrific story about the children being killed and then them returning. And I have to say to myself, no, why that? I mean, we barely have anything from the life of Jesus, right? As far as before 30, we have his birth account and in this toddler stage and then him at 12 and that's it. 
That's it. So this must be important. So what is important here about Egypt? You know, this, this place that's been around since recorded history, really. People have lived in Egypt for all kinds of years, as far back as recorded, 5,000 years. For 5,000 years. And, and Egypt's this interesting place where, you know, America is less than 300 years old. And look what we've done for the world. A lot. And yet Egypt's been around for 5,000 years. And what has it ever done for the world? Not much. It's really interesting to study this place. Uh, it's a worldview mind change when you're dealing with polytheism. Trust me, same thing in India. It's the same thing in India. It's not just about modernization. There's a deeper underlying way that we look at each other that is fundamentally different, which our country was based upon, which we're starting to see it crumble away right before our eyes. This thing of life that we've already mentioned here is crumbling before us. And, and what are we going to do about it? Our own atrocities are happening right down here in Huntsville and other places in America. And other, other times, 100 years from now, we'll look back and say, what kind of people would have done that? <laughs> Just like we look at the Nazis and we say, what? I mean, how can you come to that? Just barbarically extinguishing people as if they're nothing. And yet that's exactly what we're doing behind closed doors. This is a horrific story, and yet it's a story of hope. Egypt is this interesting place that kind of has a dual role in the Bible. If you follow certain themes throughout the whole Bible, you'll see it really helps. It's called a biblical theology. So you trace water all the way through the Bible. See how water is used in the Bible. See what kind of symbol it ultimately has in this thing of revelation in the Bible. Well, when you, when you follow Egypt, you're really introduced to Egypt with Abraham. Remember? Abraham leaves because there's a famine, actually, in the promised land. Remember, he was told, go to a place. He was from Ur. He, he, was, he was from one of the, the capital cities, major cities of the world of the Sumerians, who was the last, you know, first great civilization, but now they were at their tail end. They were, they were declining. And the whole world was... There was no superpower at the time of the patriarchs. So you were free to travel. You weren't being oppressed by one nation, such as Egypt or the Sumerians or the Mesopotamians. Or rather, it was free travel. So, so Abraham is told to actually leave his place and go to a city that God would show him. He gets there, and then there's a famine. <laughs> kind of reminds you of, remember when we went over um, Ruth? They leave God's promised place to actually go to a different place, a pagan place. Well, Abraham is, is, is actually, he has to leave, and so he goes to Egypt. And if you know your geography, Egypt is just right to their west. And Egypt is this, is this place just as far as land goes. It's pretty, it's pretty docile. In other words, it's pretty, pretty calm. Which is why when you get in the hieroglyphics, when they draw pictures of themselves, they're doing this number. Right? They're pretty calm people. They're chilled out. It's okay to laugh. I mean, you know. It's, yeah, you know, that's, that's, why that's why they're doing this thing, right? Um, when you go to, say, people like the, the Babylonians... They live in a much more rough place. They're all bearded and burly. Got the, the Egyptians very clean shaven. They even have the fake goatees that they wear. You know, have you ever seen pictures of them that they drew of themselves? They're very clean, very calm. I mean, it rains twice a year there. Very the Nile used to flood in the ancient world once every year. That's it. And it was a planned flood. They would actually put out their garbage, and the Nile would come and take it all out. Once a year. They only had to take out the garbage once a year. So that was kind of nice. But 
But here, the, the, Egypt is a very calm place. It's also a very secure place. You have desert on the west. Nobody's going to trek through that. You have the huge uh, body of uh, water there, the Red Sea, or what's called the Reed Sea, that separates them from enemies. Nobody's going to cross that. If they do, they can see them coming from a mile away. There's only really one place that you get into Egypt, and that's up through the marshy lands up north. And when you come through marsh, you know what happens. You're... And so then you're being shot at, killed. It's actually a pretty safe place, Egypt is. Now, of course, they get taken over. They internally fall twice. Actually, before the time of Abraham, they have already risen to their height and fallen twice by the time of Abraham. We sometimes think Abraham walks out of a cave. No! Abraham is coming at the tail end of one of the greatest civilizations on the face of the earth, which was the Sumerians. They already have writing. They already have developed sewer systems in some places. I mean, this is a... We, we sometimes misread the Bible because we don't know the context of the history. And here Egypt is this interesting place in the Bible that God's people find themselves in. Abraham goes there and he actually... Remember what happens with Sarah. The Pharaoh said, Woo! She's pretty hot. I, I'm going to throw her in my harem. And he says, well, Yeah, she's my sister. You know, he, Remember he lies and does all this... And so they have to leave because, because the Pharaoh wants her and it's this big debacle. And so they actually end up leaving Egypt. And Egypt plays already a place of refuge and then oppression. And you'll see this theme played out. It's a place where you can go for refuge, but also it becomes a place of oppression. Remember the second instance we have in the Bible of where, uh, where we meet Egypt, which is with Joseph. So you get Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. Israel has the twelve sons. Joseph actually, remember, is sold into slavery to these Midianites. And they take him to Potiphar's house where he's actually a slave. He works his way up. Then he gets accused of, of, of rape. And he gets put in prison. Then he works his way up in prison. And then finally gets freed and then is in second in command. So it becomes a place of op- oppression first in Joseph's instance. And then it becomes a place of hope, doesn't it? Joseph, I mean, the, you realize that the, the holy family here of, of Israel would have died out completely in the famine if it were not for Joseph's slavery, his oppression in Egypt, and then subsequent second in command, and he now provides food for the world. So, is Egypt, for the people of Israel, for the Bible, when you read through it, is a place of both oppression, but also at times of refuge and hope. It's kind of an interesting mix. Think of Moses and the children of Israel. After Joseph, Israel incubates, if you will, for 400 years in Egypt. So God's people move from the promised land to Egypt and they stay there for 400 years. In other words, when you turn your Bible from the end of Genesis to Exodus, that one page turn is 400 years. Story of Joseph to Moses, <laughs> that's 400 years. And guess what? At the beginning of Moses' life, what were they doing? Killing babies. That's what Pharaoh was doing. You remember? The people of Israel got so big that he started killing babies. And he told the midwives, the Egyptian midwives, he said, when they're having their baby, you go in and you kill the baby as they're coming out. Of course, there's two midwives that were given by name. And they say, hey, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're going to disobey Pharaoh, who was a god to the Egyptians, by the way. He wasn't just president or king. He was a god. They disobeyed a god to obey God, (laughs) who is Yahweh. 
And their names are given, and the Pharaoh's name is never given, which is the Bible's indication of who's important. Here's two servant ladies that are mentioned by name, and the Pharaoh in the Bible doesn't even have a name given to him. The Bible's trying to show us who is important and who is not. So you have 400 years here where they're in Egypt, and they're now being oppressed at the tail end of this thing because they're getting so big, and they have forgotten about Joseph and that whole story, and now they have become slaves. And they're crying out to God, and God sends Moses, who's this pillar in the Bible, who God reveals Himself to as a friend. They talk as friends, face to face, He and God. So you have Moses who, who is put in this little boat, remember, as protection from, from the killing of all the, all the children. And so Egypt, again, acts as a place of hope. You know, it's, it's at the same time they're being oppressed, Moses is found by an Egyptian princess and finds refuge in the royal court of all places. What is this saying to us in the Bible? It's saying to us that God uses other nations. God uses all kinds of things. We want to limit God and say, oh, He can only do these things. Don't ever say God can only do this. He can do what He wants. He is God by definition. And here He uses even a pagan, evil nation to raise up a leader for His people that, that really is a strong pillar for all of the Old Testament. Writes the first five books of the Old Testament. But then you get God pushing back on Egypt. Moses trained there for 40 years. And then you get the plagues, right? Remember Moses comes back and God says... Deliver my people. And so you have ten plagues. And these ten plagues, we found out now, are correlated with ten of the gods of Egypt, at least. So in other words, the Egyptians, much like us, like Navy SEALs. Why are Navy SEALs helpful? It's because they're amphibious. They go to the water, land, air, whatever. Same thing with the frog. Frogs are the same way. Frog has a special power of being amphibious. And that's, that, that means that equals power. In the ancient world, something that equals power is worthy of worship. That's why they, you know, they do call Navy Seals their second name is Frogmen. Which is why the Egyptians worshipped frogs. God said, okay, you want to worship frogs? And you can have some frogs. You remember? He floods them with frogs. There's frogs everywhere. In the royal palace, all the way down to your own bathroom. You can't, you can't do anything without frogs. And they cry out to God to deliver them. And, and He does the same thing with flies. Same thing with, with, with the sun. Remember, it becomes dark. One of the main gods of Egypt was Amon Ray, or sometimes it's called Ra or Ray, who was the sun disk. What does God do? You want to worship the sun? I'll shut it down. We'll shut this whole thing down. They worship the Nile. The Nile turns to blood. The Nile, gave, the Nile still gives Egypt life. There is no Egypt without the Nile. That's one thing they say about Egypt. Well, you shut down the Nile, you shut down Egypt. God shuts it down. And then finally, the last plague, remember what happens? Death comes to God. Remember, Pharaoh is a God, and his son is the son of God. And the son of God, for them, dies. He does not resurrect. He's dead. He's not God. So God triumphs over the gods of Egypt and delivers them out of this, again, fascinating little place just to the west of Israel. And then you get also the Passover that celebrates this 
exodus from Egypt. This deliverance. And so after the exodus, Egypt is kind of marked as a place of oppression. Of sin. Remember they get in the wilderness and they start bickering. We want to go back to Egypt. They had onions and bold stuff for us. And what are we eating out here? This manna? This garbage? That God is providing? Bread from heaven? They want to go back. Because Egypt is kind of their default. It's where they came from. It's the same reason that that you, you talk to these ladies who are in abusive relationships. You say, why would you go back? It's just what they know. It's default. They feel like there's safety even in the oppression. And the children of Israel, here they are, freed. They're on their own. And yet, they're talking about going back to Egypt. To slavery. The same thing they just cried out for deliverance for. Sound like us? think so. think so. We want to be delivered and we don't want to be delivered. We want to be rid of our sin and yet we fall back to it. It's our default. It's our comfort thing. We get in a bind, we move to it. Passover says, don't forget what God has done for you. There ought to be mile markers in your own life of where God has worked where He's done something, where He's delivered you. And you ought to celebrate those. I mean, one of mine is coming up soon, February 28th, 1999. God did a miraculous thing in my life and called me to preach. It's a memorable thing for me that I mark every single year as a, as a milestone. It's not the only thing I, I lean on. No, I lean on new experiences with Jesus. I don't try to revamp old ones or heat them up in the microwave each year. But rather, I look for new experiences, just like in your marriage or your relationships with with those you love. You ought not to always just lean on the past. The past is not always trustworthy. The past won't carry you through new things. But rather, the person will. Same thing with Jesus. We must look to His person, not just just some past event. That's That's why communion and Passover ought to have been for them a faith issue. Yes, you're remembering something in the past, but now God wants to do something. He still wants to deliver you. And also you remember in the Bible, as we're tracking through with Egypt, the exile. Remember the Babylonians come? Well, really the first Assyrians come in, take over the northern kingdom. And so the southern kingdom leans on Egypt. Then the Babylonians come in. They take over the whole world. Known world at that point. Not as big as the Persians, but close. And who do they go to? They run to Egypt and God says through Jeremiah, He says, you're going to be punished for that because you didn't run to me. Instead, you ran to your default. And then we get Matthew. And Egypt pops up on the screen again, doesn't it? Right here in Jesus' life. I mean, why would the Bible give us this little story? The Bible's just not random. It's on purpose. It's a need-to-know basis. So if a memo comes out to you on a need-to-know basis, it's important. If not everything was given, but this was given, this is important. What is important about Jesus as an infant, a toddler whatever he might have been at this point, under two. Well, what's important to him going to Egypt? It's because he's redoing everything he's undoing, is another way of putting it, everything that we've gotten ourselves caught into. He is, as Matthew wants to show in his Gospel, he is the new Moses. That's one of Matthew's main points in his book. You're going to see Jesus in just a chapter or two ascend a mountain. Sound familiar? And what does He begin to do? 
go further than the law. Why? Because Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is not just another Moses or equal to Moses, but greater than Moses. And that's really saying something for a Jew. I mean, Moses is the one who really sets the whole foundation of the rest of the Old Testament. And so now one comes along who was before even Abraham. And he goes to Egypt. He flees to Egypt again for refuge, but then he's told to leave there. You see, I'm convinced that this story tells me this. In my life and in your life, we have these places of refuge that that we really legitimately might be called to. Certain relationships or certain seasons in our life where we do something or give ourselves... But I'm convinced that we stay too long. I'm convinced sometimes that we begin, God is using something or someone in our life, but then we begin to lean on them more than Him. Don't you see the people of Israel doing this often? With the Ark of the Covenant, they did it, remember? With the temple, they do it. We, our tendency is to make things into idols. We like to make things and people God, including ourselves. Maybe you have a great talent. God gave you that talent, but now you lean on it more than Him. You bypass other you bypass God for other people's advice. You lean on your own understanding rather than on his. And and whatever your Egypt may be, whether it's a sin that you're addicted to, that when you get in a bind, you move to it, or when you get depressed, you go to it. Or when you're happy, you go to it to celebrate. You know, we always like to, us humans, we like to have a, a little time out to ourselves. We just have a little time out. I can do what I want. Or maybe when we're going through life's tough places, we want to default back to whatever Egypt it is that we move to. Or maybe when, when, when the enemy's coming against us strong, we want to fall back to Egypt rather than to trust God. It's an easy thing to say that you trust God. The real determining factor is your actions. Is your actions. Where do you actually turn to? Where do you actually spend your time? We shouldn't be so concerned with Egypt that we lose Jesus. Whatever Egypt may be for you. Oppression, addiction. Uh, again, we, can turn, we have a fascinating way as humans of turning anything into a God. Anything into an idol. Football entertainment, food. I mean, we're professional idol makers, really. Even going to church. Even our own good works. I've been there before where I've turned my good works for God into an idol where I hold it up and say, this is why I'm going to heaven. No. 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 God wants to help us fly from Egypt. This is called the flight to Egypt, but they also fly out of Egypt. We're not talking about airplanes here. We're talking about spiritually. In your life, your, maybe your family, maybe what people have said about you has, become a, has made you a slave. You think, well, I just get mad because that's who I am. Deal with it. 
Or I make fun of people. Or we, we joke about everything, never getting down to anything seriously. Or maybe, maybe you know, just depression is just who I am. Let me tell you something. The good news of Jesus Christ is He can deliver. You just say, well, I'm addicted to that and, and it'll probably never get fixed. Not with that attitude, it won't. We can fly with Jesus Christ. He goes into Egypt as a toddler to show us again that this place of oppression doesn't have to be. We can leave. We can leave if we'll allow God to help us dream. Some of us have fallen deaf to the Word of God in our own lives. I mean, we're at the beginning of a new year. Now is the time to dream. But climb up into the Father's lap in prayer and allow Him to fill us with His dreams for this year and beyond. Every journey, this is from The Hobbit, every journey starts with just one step. you got to leave. Remember Bilbo? He's all worried about leaving. That's not, that's not what you know, Bagginses do, right? But he leaves. He takes that one step. So all you got to do today, take that one step. Whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever kind of Egypt you have on your back, so to speak, that you feel like is always there for you to fall back on rather than God, let it go. Fly away from that place, from those circumstances with Christ. That's what the toddler Jesus here is trying to teach us, I believe, in this passage. There's going to be suffering in life. You're going to meet suffering. There was suffering. I mean, Jesus, they're trying to kill Jesus before he ever turns two. It's going to be bad things that happen. But Jesus comes to redeem. He comes to rescue us, in other words. And the way he does that is by undoing and becoming the new Moses. We get ourselves tangled up. Into Egypt, he undoes that by going to Egypt. I mean, the best way to fix any problem is to go back to the problem. And God goes directly to the problem and he undoes everything in his own person, which is what makes him our Savior. The old theologians, to teach you a new theological word, say that Jesus recapitulated everything in human experience. He's the new Adam. He's the new Moses. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than the sacrifices. He is our high priest. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's the prophet premier. This is Jesus. He is God. He has no beginning. He's from everlasting to everlasting. Do you know that Jesus? Have have you even been delivered from Egypt? Some of you may be sitting here still in the sin of Egypt. You've not had an exodus. But for those of you who have, do you still have the fire burning within you? The passion of God pushing you forward into this new year? Do you, do you love God? That's the real issue here. Do you really love God? I mean, you can throw Him, you can throw him your good works. I can throw that at Him. We can do all this kind of stuff. We can say and get some kind of positional thing where, oh yeah, people believe I'm a Christian. People know I'm a Christian. That's not good enough. Do you actually love God? 
Do you love Jesus? You can trick everybody in this room, including me. That's fine. That's yeah, whatever. Get Emmy. Emmy? Is that what they get? Emmy? Emmy Awards? What do they call it? I don't know. Anyway, shows you how less I watch TV. Oscar. Thank you. Oscar Award. You can get Oscar. But here's the reality is you're not tricking God. And the whole point of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus comes to give us life and life more abundantly. Let Him fill you with His love today who is His Holy Spirit. He comes to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. Let's be baptized in the Holy Spirit, completely immersed in the things of God. And we'll see everything else come into focus. If you'll let Him do that in your life, He can do it today. Amen.